And I will lead us in a brief prayer as we come to hear from God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come again another Sunday morning, another Lord's Day, a day that we set aside to come and hear from you, from your word. Would you cause that to happen now, even through feeble lips like mine, cause your word to be what goes forth. Protect us from any error and lead us in all truth and build up your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember as I walked into my new office, this new building in Washington, D.C., that looked somewhat like a concrete fortress. And then I walked, and as I stepped into my boss's office, I remember two questions plaguing my mind. What is required of me? And do I have what it takes? Two questions that I assume many of you have had as well as you've started a new job. What is required of me? And do I have what it takes? But if you think about it, we really carry these two questions throughout much of life. Not just starting a new job, but if we start a new sports team. Or if we get married. Or when we have our first child. Or maybe it's your sixth child. When what is required of me, and do I have what it takes? But I wonder how you'd answer those same questions with respect to God. You know, what does God require of me, and do I have what it takes? All around the world, people are orienting their entire lives around what they believe to be the answers to those same two questions. And even on this very island, There's a variety of answers, and some will even say, well, God requires nothing of me. Or if he does, it's certainly nothing more than simply being the best person I can be. But I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. If you would, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2, where we'll find what God, how God answers that question for us. You'll find it on page 1811 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And if you remember, throughout this letter to Galatians, the churches in Galatia, Paul has been uh, writing against these false teachers known as Judaizers. And they all agree on the first question we asked, what God requires of you. Their answer, complete righteousness, sinlessness, perfection. That's what they all assume to be God's standard. No debate is there, and we'll see that as we continue in our text. But the conflict arises around our second question. Do I have what it takes? A question at the heart of the very gospel that Paul is writing this letter to defend. And the seven verses we'll consider this morning present the summary of Paul's answer, and really the summary of the whole book of Galatians, or the whole letter of Galatians. In fact, if you were to only memorize or or focus in in Galatians on seven verses, it would probably be these. Paul's answer to the question, do I have what it takes, might surprise you. It's an emphatic no. You don't have what it takes, but you can. You can have it if you look outside of yourself and obtain it by faith in another. A faith that declares you righteous. 
And so that's what we want to consider this morning, what the three aspects of faith that Paul zeroes in on, the object, the outcome, and the purpose of faith. The object, the outcome, and the purpose. And we'll take them in that order. And just to prepare you a slight warning, the first point, this object, is going to be the longest. So when we get to the end of it, don't sweat, because the the next two will be increasingly shorter after that. But these two first two verses where we address the object, is it's the crux of this whole letter. So we need to make sure we spend sufficient time there. So if you would, follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So we want to consider first the object of faith. Paul's contrast there in verse 15, it emphasizes the way Jews felt toward Gentiles. So he says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Not that the Jews thought of themselves as sinless. Rather, they just knew that they were recipients of God's law. The law which taught them how to live righteously. But because the Gentiles did not have that law, well, they were by necessity lawless. They were viewed as unrestrained, without a mind toward obeying God. They were by necessity unrighteous and unclean. And that's why the Jews, you'd find, wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't associate themselves with them. If you think of Peter from last week's text, withdrawing from the Gentiles because of the association he might have with them. In fact, verses 15 and 16 are probably the continuation of Paul rebuking Peter for that very withdrawal, that very separation. But then in verse 16, he points out just how well the law had been working for them. He says, you, my law-receiving and law-abiding friend, you know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, there are three key words you'll find in that text. They're key because they're each used three different times in the one single verse. Do you see them? 
justified, law, and faith. Or depending on your translation, you might see belief in place of faith. Justified law and faith. So we want to unpack those to make sure we understand. If Paul's going to put that emphasis on this verse, that we understand what each means. So let's start with justified. What does justified mean? Well, it means to be declared righteous. The opposite of being declared guilty or condemned. It is the judge in the courtroom dropping the gavel and saying, innocent, without a charge. He is righteous against any charges against him. The law, though, Paul is likely referring to the whole Mosaic law, the whole Jewish law, the law that God gave to teach how his people should live and the ceremonial aspect of it that would set them apart and make them distinct. A law that was good and would reveal God's character to us. And yet even though they were advantaged by receiving the law, what had it taught them? Man is not justified, is not declared righteous by observing it. So we see even our answer to the first question we had this morning. What does God require of us? Well, there's uh, unity here. They know that God requires us to be completely righteous, to be without sin, to be holy as he is holy. But the law proved that they didn't have what it takes at least not in their own obedience. And why not? Well, because they were lawbreakers. They failed to keep it perfectly as the law required. So imagine yourself in a courtroom, and you are there because you're charged with a crime. This might be hard to imagine, but just imagine it. A serious crime. A crime like murder. And you are guilty, and you know you are guilty, and the jury knows you're guilty, and there's no question about it. Now imagine you walk in and you're carrying with you the law and you walk up to the jury and you put that before them and you try to use the law to justify yourself. It would be foolish because it was the law, the very law that was used to expose your guilt in the first place. You would not plead on behalf of the law. It only exposes your guilt. And whether it was ignorance to the law Uh, Neither ignorance to the law, nor your deeds of the past, uh, nor your promises of your life in the future could ever acquit you of that one account, could ever remove your guilt of your one violation. And so in that sense, very simply, God's law proves us to be lawbreakers and therefore unrighteous, unable to present ourselves as righteous on our own account which Paul concludes there at the end of verse verse 16 by saying that no one, a universal statement, your your translation might say no flesh, no human being, no one will be justified, which is really just a quotation of Psalm 143 that we read earlier. This conclusion that David, the great Jewish patriarch who loved the law, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew that no one, by observing the law, would be justified before a righteous God. I wonder if you agree. I wonder if you agree this morning with what Paul's concluding here. If you would agree that his conclusion is accurate. 
When you honestly evaluate yourself, do you think that you measure up to this righteous standard of perfection? I think it's telling that we even have simple excuses. I'm only human. What does that tell you? That to be human is to be flawed, to be imperfect. So then what are we to do? If the law only proves us lawbreakers and unrighteous, how are we to be declared righteous before a righteous God? Friends, reaching that very question was the primary purpose of the law in the first place, to drive us to an end in ourselves and to realize we need to look outside of ourselves for the righteousness that God requires. It drives us to a need to be justified by a means other than us. It points us to the good news of this gospel that Paul has been proclaiming throughout this letter, that God saw us, each one of us, guilty in our sin, Jew or Gentile, and though not one of us could finally meet the righteous requirement he held out, he sent his son to live the righteous life required of each one of us. And when he died on the cross, he bore the penalty for the sins, for the unrighteousness of anyone who would ever turn away from their sin and trust in him. And then three days later, when he rose from the dead, he proved that sacrifice complete and he offered his righteousness so that anyone who would receive his righteousness would now stand before God righteous as God requires. It's as Romans 8, 3 says, through him, Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. Can be fulfilled in us. But then how is such righteousness received? How do we receive it from him? Well, Paul says it is to be received by faith. Three times he says it is by faith, faith in Christ. And such faith is not just a simple kind of mental and intellectual assent. It's an actual entrustment into an active belief. A staking your life on what Jesus has accomplished and what he has offered you in uh, what he did on the cross. And Paul says it is by such faith that you are justified, declared righteous, because you now have his righteousness. Are you with me? This is, this is the crux of Galatians here. And I want you to notice, though, the focus Paul has is not on the strength of faith, but the object of faith. It's not the strength of their faith, but the object of their faith. So if you have ever been tandem skydiving, you have a little taste of this. All the courage in the world mustered up as you strap on and you get onto the plane and the plane takes off and you start climbing and climbing and climbing and you're kind of looking out the window, but you're not really seeing the full view yet. You get up to the door and the door pulls open and you look out. And all that strength starts to melt away. As you see, there's nothing between you and the ground but thousands of feet of air. In that moment, it is not going to be the object, or excuse me, it's not going to be the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of it. You have this crazy guy strapped to your back. 
And he tells you, I will handle everything if you will trust me. I will deliver you. I will take care of it all if you would just trust me. And whether you have the faith to jump out of that door or just enough faith to fall out, it will finally be the object of that faith that carries you to safety. And illustrations like this abound. I mean, if you, for fishermen, it is not the strength of your faith in your boat. It's the boat that carries you. The strength of it. You just put your faith in it and it carries you to shore. I mean, you could continue with this. This is what makes the lies of the prosperity gospel preachers. Guys like Joel Osteen who tell you that you just need more faith. Your prosperity depends on more faith. It is a lie. And it not only is a lie, but it takes the very object of faith, which is intended to be Christ, and it pulls it off of him and back onto yourself. And in the end, it makes faith a law. Because now you have to measure up to faith. Which was the whole point of faith, is that the law condemns. And you now shackle yourself. Back to the law again by trying to measure up to having enough strength. But for the Christian, the object of faith is Christ. And he is incomparably reliable to deliver. To carry even the weakest sheep upon his shoulders and bring them back to the 99. As James Boyce said, faith is the means, not the source of justification. Faith is trust. It begins with knowledge, so it's not blind. It builds on facts, so it's not speculation. It stakes its life on the outcome, so it's not impractical. Faith is trusting Christ and proving his promises. So what is the object of your faith this morning? Maybe you're someone who thinks faith is for the weak. A crutch. An illusion, as Sigmund Freud called it. I want you to realize that we all live by faith. None of us have the answers to every question. It's not a question of whether we will exercise faith. It's a matter of what will be the object of our faith. We just choose in what to put our faith in. Or maybe you are confident that there is a God, but your faith rests on your good works. Like a child with a report card, straight A's, and they excitedly come to present it to their parent. And so you too take all the good deeds you've done and you walk up to God and you try to present them before him. Friends, I want you not to miss that the Bible presents God's standard as perfection. As perfect and complete righteousness. And apart from trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, you will stand before God according to your own righteousness. And as we've already seen, will be found guilty. But what God holds out to you is a righteousness of his son. A perfection in him to be received if you would choose to turn away from your sin and your self-dependence. And depend wholly on Jesus alone for his forgiveness found at the cross and the righteousness offered by faith. Would you do that even today?
But for the Christian in here this morning, the one who has been justified, I want you to see God's, do you see God's view of you in that way? Do you see God's love for you as the father's love for the son? The source of his pleasure in you depends not on how well you parent. The source of his pleasure in you depends not on how much of the Bible you have memorized. The source of his pleasure in you depends not on how many times you share the gospel. All of those things are good, and we will get to that in a moment as we continue in the passage. Right things for Christians to be doing, to be responding to this grace and this saving faith. But his pleasure in you is found in his pleasure in his son, in whom you have faith. If you are in Christ, you are loved. And if you are in Christ, you are loved because of Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are loved as the Father has loved Christ. No amount of law or good deeds or hard work can cause God to love you more than he does if you are in his Son. Because no amount of good deeds could ever add to the love he has for his Son. You add nothing to his perfection. So when you are tempted to question God's love for you, consider the love of God toward Jesus. Consider the perfect love of your heavenly father toward his beloved son. John seventeen twenty three says, Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them as you have loved me. And if this is true, this should have incredible implications on even the life of this church. There is nowhere that should be more welcoming to sinners than a local church. Because the church understands they are a group of sinners. Only they're repentant sinners. So we welcome them and we, we exhort them to put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And when they do, if they have casted off the shackles of their sin, there should be complete unity. For then at that point, all have received the same righteousness. All have received the same forgiveness, the same righteousness found in his son. None more loved by God than the other. For all are loved as God has loved his son. So what then does God require of us? Complete righteousness. Do we have what it takes? No. At least not on your own, but we can obtain it by faith in the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then that begs the question, doesn't it? What is the point of our good deeds? If we are justified by faith, why do we go on doing good things? All we have to do is say, Jesus will forgive me. Or at least that's what Paul's opponent said. And that's what Paul addresses in our next few verses, verses 17 to 20, where we consider the outcome of faith. Follow along with me as I read verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that make Christ a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live 
by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me try to briefly explain 17 through 19, because I think they're some of the more confusing verses, at least they were for me, uh, in this passage. So the Judaizers are saying that to require nothing of sinners but faith will not only throw off the law, but it will lead to complete unrestraint. People doing whatever they want. Kind of like I said a moment ago, the ability to live however you please and just say, well, well, Jesus will forgive me. It will compel them, promote them, encourage them to be like what they call the Gentiles in verse 15. Gentile sinners, unrestrained and unclean. And this gets Paul really worked up. You see an exclamation mark in your Bible. It's, it's the evidence that Paul is fired up at the accusation that Jesus would promote sin. So he responds with an emphatic, no, absolutely not. It's not Jesus who promotes sin. In fact, what promotes sin is trying to earn your righteousness by the law. That's what he just covered. It was, in fact, Christ who actually tore down that wall of condemnation that freed us from sin. And if I were to turn back now to the law, I would just be rebuilding what Christ tore down through faith. Rather, I, which would result in, when he talks about being a transgressor, would result in the law just proving him to be a transgressor again. Rather, Paul says he died to the law. And it was only by dying to the law that he was for the first time able to live for God. It was as though the Judaizers were accusing a doctor of promoting drug addiction for healing an overdosed addict simply because that addict might return once again to his drug. It is preposterous. It's crazy because doctors help the sick. They do not wait for the sick to heal themselves before they help them. In fact, they help them in order to enable them to start living healthily. And Jesus came as the good physician. The law diagnosed us as condemned, but Jesus offered justification as the cure. And cure to be received by faith. And Paul says the cure is the very enablement of our beginning to live healthily. And insofar as that cure continues to be received by faith, our health will continue to improve until we finally overcome the disease of sin. So Paul refuses to add anything to the cure that the good physician has prescribed him, lest he turn the cure into nothing but a placebo. Deceit for the brain that does nothing for the heart. Instead, Paul says far from returning to the law in verse 19, he dies to it. Not so that he could live however he wanted, but so that for the first time he could live for God. It was not just a way to live for God. It was for Paul the only way for him to live truly for God. And so he says it was by faith that he was united to Christ. And so by faith, he was enabled to live 
like Christ, or rather to have Christ live in him. So we want to look at just briefly how he unpacks even that. And he begins by saying he not only died to the law, but he was crucified with Christ. He knew that under the law he stood condemned. Law's verdict against him was death. That was the penalty to be paid. And yet at the cross it had been paid for him. So when he unites himself to Christ, he is crucified with Christ. And so the law carries out its full weight of judgment against him at that moment. But when he united himself with Christ in his death, he was united with Christ in his resurrection, in his defeat over sin of death. And with the full weight and penalty of sin done with, there's nothing left to levy against him. The law's condemnation no longer could be carried out against him, but rather he stood as righteous. And not only righteous, but as Christ living in him. If you're a gardener, you've seen this illustrated time and again. Because you see death giving forth, bringing forth life. As you bury the seed into the ground and the seed has to die in order to sprout forth life. So too, sinners come to an end in themselves. They look by faith to Jesus. They die to their sin, are crucified with Christ, and are therefore enabled to sprout forth in life in him, with him living in them. So this is the outcome of faith. It is a union with Christ that produces a likeness to Christ. And it, it, and it is a life lived in response. Did you notice that? The order of operations there? Paul says he lives this new life by faith in what? The son of God who loved, past tense, loved me. Loved me. Personal. Specific. This is the type of love that Christ had for Paul and for any Christian in this room. The type of love that your savior had for you. And how does he demonstrate his love for you? Well, he says he gave himself for you. Before you ever lived this life, before any of this Christ-like living had ever demonstrated itself, he died for you. When you were nothing more than a sick, destitute patient, Christ gave himself for you. Literally laying down his life and ransoming you from the penalty of every sin you've ever committed so that he could unite himself with you and change you from the inside out. And so the life we live as Christians is in fact a life lived in response, a life lived in response, but it does respond. The Christian life or faith does produce a response That's Paul's point here. He's combating the accusations that it wouldn't. And he's saying it always does. It necessarily does. He's demonstrating that far from being a license to go on sinning, any true faith will be marked by an increasing likeness to your Savior. It was Martin Luther who said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. True saving faith is always accompanied by a life lived in response 
following after your Savior and living like him. And if you want an idea of what this looks like, just turn this afternoon over to Galatians 5, where we see what it looks like to put off the deeds of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, envy, drunkenness, jealousy, selfish ambition, and things like these, to put that off in following Christ, and to put on the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. It's much like the parable that Jesus told, that you will know a tree by its fruit. A You can't attach apples to an orange tree and suddenly make that orange tree an apple tree. The fruit doesn't change the nature of the tree. It simply demonstrates what kind of tree that is. Even if you do try to attach those fruit to it, it might deceive for a moment, but it will ultimately prove what it is when the true fruit starts to shine forth. And yet such works always flow from an understanding of this full forgiveness that you receive at the cross. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because when we live under the law, the moment we break it, we crumble. We stand condemned. But when we understand that that sin, that very sin you've just committed, it was crucified with Christ. It was atoned for, paid for. Well, now you respond to that sin, not with despair, but with repentance and with rejoicing. Repentance because you want to turn away from the very thing that crucified your Savior. You have no taste for it anymore. But rejoicing, knowing that he has saved you from it. So you repent and you rejoice and then you respond. Did you realize that your life is a living testimony? The way you live is a living testimony to who Jesus is in the eyes of those around you. When you're around your coworkers and someone begins to gossip, what does your response teach them about who Jesus is and what it means for him to live in you as you say he does? Or what does complaining and grumbling teach others about the joy of being united with Christ? And I'm not talking about grief here. There is a clear merit of biblical and godly grief. I'm talking about complaints and grumbling from your daily annoyances like busy traffic or your boss or that job deadline. Which so small of circumstances so easily sway you from the joy that is to be found in being united with Christ. Of being given better than you could have ever asked or imagined that you would so quickly start complaining and grumbling about your circumstances. And I wonder what you think your attitude at home might teach your kids about what it looks like to be a new creation as Christ is doing in you. In the home, you have the opportunity and the responsibility to be the the most consistent illustration to your children of what it looks like to be a new creation. To make it attractive being united with Christ. So Paul presents not just the object of your faith, but the outcome of your faith. And then he concludes with verse 21, where we want to conclude this morning with the purpose 
of faith. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. At Christmas time, my family and I love to exchange gifts. It's a pretty big deal. Who gets what gift for who and getting gifts from one another and having found something that they would really like. But what would happen if this year I went home for Christmas and my family brought these gifts to me and I said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But, you know, I know you can't really handle this. I know this wouldn't be good for you and you're really not able to do this. So here, let me pull out my checkbook and write you a quick check. And for your time and effort, let me, let me just add a little bit more. Now, the parents in the room might say a hearty amen. <laughs> but if you really think about it, it's a slap in the face. If you imagine your child saying, Mom and Dad, you really can't handle this. After the time and effort and sacrifice you made to present them with an unearned gift out of love. And what Paul is saying is that when we add anything to what Christ has done on the cross for us, it is as though we're spitting on him on the cross, making a mockery of the very sacrifice he made for us. It nullifies, it eradicates, it removes it from being a gift, for it is no longer free. It is earned. It is as though it's a job and this is our wages. And it begs the question, why would Jesus have died in the first place? If you can do it on your own, why did Jesus die on the, in the first place? At best, if you add to the free grace received through faith, you either prove his sacrifice to be incomplete or at best insufficient. We say that he came up short. But we've got the rest. And why would we want to bear what Jesus has offered to bear for us? An offering to make our burden easy and light. Friends, we should instead revel in it. Far more than a child at Christmas reveling in the joys of their gift, we have been offered a gift of far greater value than anything we could ever ask or imagine. We should not be like the Judaizers who depreciate that gift by trying to add something to it and scorn not just the gift, but the giver. Instead, we should delight in it, rest in it, find deep joy in knowing that God has declared you righteous apart from anything you have ever done. And he's called you now to respond by going and living for him as you await the eternal home to which he's called you. So again, what does God require of you? Complete righteousness. And do you have what it takes? No. Not on your own. But you can if you receive it by faith in Jesus, a faith that not only unites him with you, but changes you and causes you to start living for him and for the glory of his name, upholding the very gospel that we hold so dear. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your gift of grace. And we do pray now that your, your children would receive by faith 
Christ and the righteousness he offers and would make that you would make them to leave here looking more like Jesus and living more like Jesus that the world might be attracted desire to come and see we pray all of this in Jesus name amen